Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a new friend on the phone with me. Welcome to the Project Purple Podcast, Christine Dragone from University of Chicago Medical Center. How are you, Christine? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? Doing well, doing well. It's a little, uh, well, it's supposed to warm up today. It's been a little cold. Uh, we're, we're full disclosure. We're filming, we're filming. We're not, we're not filming anything. We are recording this, uh, the day after the election. So I think, right. you know, there's so much uncertainty in the United States. Go figure. Uh, but, uh, yesterday was a cool day today. Uh, the sun is out and it's warm here in, in New England. I know there's, uh, I, I saw from some friends out in the Midwest, it's, it's gotten pretty warm warm, I guess, yesterday. And I guess that's coming our way. So that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday was nice here, you know, always freezing in the morning, but then uh, warmed up nicely throughout the afternoon. And I'm hoping it lasts, but I don't have a great feeling about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's winter. Winter's on its way. I know. Well, Christine, thank you for joining us. Um, Your title and your role at the University of Chicago, Chicago Medical Center is you are a certified genetic counselor working with the GI team and specifically with someone who's been on the podcast before and who's part of the Pre-Seed Consortium, Dr. Sonia Kuffer. And I know before we hit record, we were kind of catching up and, and connecting the dots. You're new to the Chicagoland area. And yeah. you're excited to be working with Dr. Cuffer with her program in terms of early detection and high risk patients. But before we get into that, because that's we're going to talk about that, we always give our audience, our give our guests, the audience, you know, for our audience, the opportunity to hear a little bit about your background and how you got to Chicago because you're not originally from Chicago, um, but right. <laughs> but to a place that's we could say somewhat similar to Chicago, given the weather and the culture and everything as, as you and I talked before we hit record. So with that, I want to hand it off to you and give you an opportunity to share your background with our audience. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Thanks so much. So, um, so yeah, like you said, you know, I'm not originally from here, just kind of made it to the Midwest, um, within the last few months. So moving in the middle of COVID uh, was an experience, but um, I am originally from the Boston area, Um, lived there for most of my life, Um, went to to school there in Rhode Island. We have that connection, which was fun uh, to learn about. And then um, I worked for two years after I graduated from Providence College at um, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute um, in their Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention. And there I was involved in recruiting patients for research studies. Um, and those patients were mainly people who had, who had increased risk of cancer, either based on their family history or if they had a mutation or something like that. Um, and that's really what made me want to become a genetic counselor because um, I loved working with uh, patients. And honestly, I think genetics is just so interesting. Um, so I decided that I wanted to be a genetic counselor um, and I completed my training at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, And there, uh, some of my mentors were Dr. Randall Brand, who I know uh, is also really involved uh, in the community as well. Um, And so completed my training there and then um, ended up applying for this job in Chicago to work for Dr. Kupfer. And it seemed like uh, such a dream come true when she uh, called and said that... um, that I got the job and I accepted and it was so exciting to be able to join her team. I was, you know, uh, really looking forward to working with someone who not only focuses on GI uh, cancer genetics, but also someone who is involved in research and is interested in kind of moving the field forward, which I think um, in genetics, we have a responsibility to do because we still have so much to learn about genetics and how we can best take care of people um, who are at an increased risk. So, so that's kind of uh, the long story short. I've been here in Chicago now since May, so just about six months or so, um, and been working with Dr. Kupfer and have already learned so much from her. Um, so yeah, just really enjoying my time here so far. That's got to be tough, though, to to transition, you know, in this COVID pandemic, you know, with uh, not only 
transitioning personally, right? Like you're moving <laughs> from one part of the country to another part. And, uh, but then also transition, you know, how you do your job, which I think has been kind of a, um, I wouldn't say a learning experience. Well, I guess some of it's been a learning experience. I know from the clinicians yeah. we've talked to about like, you know, how screening prevention and medicine has changed in the last eight months. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and at the university of Chicago, we're very fortunate to be able to utilize a lot of telemedicine options. So we've still been able to see patients, um, virtually, you know, through uh, computers or by phone if a computer isn't available um, so that patients can still get the care that they need. So, you know, I think uh, I wasn't around for the very first adjustment period, but have kind of come on in the middle of it. Um, and it seems to be working well. Of course, you know, we love seeing our, our patients in person, but um, it's great that we can still provide care for people, even if you know, it's, it's not a particularly safe time to be traveling and out and about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned Dr. Brand. Uh, Randy is going to be a guest on our podcast. He's part of the Pre-Seed Consortium. Um, he's been at this thing, um, you know, in terms of high-risk patients and early detection for a long, long time, as is Dr. Cuffer and so yes. many of our partners on Precede. So it's just awesome to hear similar names and, you know, like I like to say the like-minded people in the space that are all together, you know, working on this thing Precede, uh, you know, for early detection, which is just awesome. It just inspires me to hear, you know, that people, you know, have these connections and they have that yeah. mental like-mindedness that we're all in it mm -hmm. together. So it's just awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and working for Dr. Brand, I think he is so passionate about the work that he does specifically in the pancreatic cancer space. Um, and so he was a, a big inspiration for me, too, to stick with genetics and GI specifically. Um because, you know, I, I wanted to continue some of the work that he's been doing there in Pittsburgh. So, yeah, it's a, it's a small community for sure, but I think it's a dedicated one um, and exciting that you'll have him on your podcast, too. He's uh, a great guy. He's really fun to talk to. You just created another reminder to reach out and bug him once more, one more time because oh. I think we were supposed to connect in October. Uh, but now that reminds me, there's a couple other people I got to remind to uh, to reach out to. So that's a good one. So I've got a, my first hard question here for you. I wouldn't say yeah. hard; they're, they're probably loaded. But why GI? And, and you know, this is something that I'm always curious. I mean, mm -hmm. coming out of uh, you know school and, and doing you know, your residency and all the work that you do. I always yeah. ask why people go into a GI field. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, um, from when I start, first started learning about genetics, it was in the cancer realm. And so going into school, that was kind of the idea that I wanted to be doing cancer genetics once I graduated. Um, but as I started learning more about the specific types and what, what type of patients different genetic counselors see, um, I got really excited about GI cancer genetics. And I think part of the reason for that is just because of the variety of patients that I see. Um, of course, I see patients who have family histories of pancreatic cancer. And, and you know, I think it's kind of the main purpose of, of us talking today. But I also see patients with increased risk for colon cancer, colon polyps, gastric cancer. And so I'm really seeing new things all the time. Um, and I'm able to have some variety in that. But then the other reason why I really like GI cancer genetics is because I think that we know a lot or the kind of in the public space, it's, it's more common knowledge that breast cancer can run in families. Mm -hmm. um, and things like the BRCA mutations, you know, um, are, are things that more people know about. Uh, but then when you say, oh, well, you know, pancreatic cancer can run in families and so can colon cancer. And that's, that's something that people don't always know. Um, and so one of my goals actually you know, throughout my career, and, you know, we'll see how long this takes, uh, it will probably <laughs> take quite a long time, um, is to make um, GI cancer syndromes as well known as hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, um, to let people know that it's important to know about, you know, their family histories of GI cancer as well. I love it. 
So on that note, let's take a couple steps back and share with our audience. Cause I, I think, you know, the term genetic testing, I think yeah. has been around for a long, long time. Um, you know, if anyone has experienced any type of cancer in the family, they probably have, uh, potentially heard of that in the last 10, 20 years. And I just use my own personal experience. When my mom was first diagnosed with breast cancer, her first time around back in 2001, genetic testing was brought up, but it, at the time it was like $5,000 and it was like out of pocket oh. expense. You know, fast forward to 2016, when my mom gets re-diagnosed with breast cancer, genetic testing was free and it was you know, given to her basically like, Hey, you can do this. You should get it done. You know, it was kind of required. It was kind of like what they suggested the path that she should follow. So, you know, I think people probably have heard the term genetic testing, but let's take a step back and let's talk about what is genetic testing? Like what, what is the process? Like from an actual physical standpoint, what are people doing? And then what's on the science on the back end? What are they actually doing on the scientific side? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so genetic testing certainly has come a long way, and you kind of alluded to that. Um, we we didn't really start doing genetic testing for cancer anyway until about you know nineties, early two thousands, um, and even since then, we've done a lot more. Uh, we're able to do a lot more now than we were. And like you said too, the cost has come down significantly for testing. Um, so. So what, what happens when you do genetic testing is basically you give a sample of your DNA um, and we have DNA in all of our cells of our bodies and our DNA is made up of genes and each of our genes actually has a job in our body um, and the genetic testing for cancer is specifically looking at those genes whose job it is to protect us from getting cancer in the first place. Um, so what it does is it reads through the DNA um, and then using a very fancy computer program um, is able to determine whether there is a mutation or a change in one of those genes that makes it so that that gene doesn't have the right instructions to do its job correctly um, and therefore increases somebody's risk to get cancer. So generally, um, what we do is we either take a blood sample um, or a saliva sample. And, you know, more recently with these virtual visits and things like that, we've been doing uh, saliva samples where the laboratory will actually mail a kit to somebody's house. You spit in this little tube and then you put it back in the mail. And the laboratory does their analysis of the genes that we ask them for. Um, usually the test takes about three or four weeks or so to come back and those results are returned to either your genetic counselor or the doctor who ordered your testing um, for them to kind of look over and, and make sure that everything kind of makes sense with what we were expecting based on your family history and your personal history and then they'll let you know of the results. Um, so the whole process takes about a month or so I would say. So and I'm glad you brought up the, the spit and the, the blood and the saliva. Because one of my questions here, as I'm taking notes here, you said sample of DNA is involved. So mm -hmm. first question on that, is there a benefit in having a blood draw versus saliva? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, one that people ask, you know, frequently, because obviously, you know, they want to make sure that their genetic testing is accurate. And um, if, if there is a mutation, that it would be picked up. And so what we know is that um, our DNA is the same in both our blood cells and our saliva cells. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the same DNA in both of those cell types. And if you were to have a mutation, it would be expected that you it would be there in both of those sample types. Um, the thing that can get kind of tricky is that with the saliva samples, um, you have to follow kind of very specific instructions in order to make sure that um, the sample is of good enough quality to be able to use. So for example, um, you know, making sure that you don't eat or drink. I think some labs say an hour, other labs say 30 minutes before you give your sample, just so that, you know, we're not getting your coffee or <laughs> anything else in your, in your DNA sample. Um, and then making sure that you label the tube with your name and your date of birth so that the laboratory is able to say, okay, this, 
this tube belongs to this person. Um, and so the samples aren't getting mixed up. Um, and also screwing on the, the top of the tube nice and tight. We've had some, some issues where uh, sometimes by the time the saliva tube gets back to the lab, uh, the saliva is kind of all over the package and then it's not usable. So, so the biggest issues that we have with doing the saliva samples are not in regards to how accurate um, the test is or its ability to pick up a mutation. It's more along the lines of, um, you know, actually giving the sample, making sure that it's packaged and labeled correctly um, before it gets back to the lab. Interesting. So, a question that just came up in my mind. So, if we're talking about a sample of DNA, and I look back at, you know, I mean, there, there, you know, if you look at the the legal industry and how DNA is processed, whether it's like a hair or you know um, a fingerprint or, or you know some sort of like a fingernail or something along those lines. Could a piece of hair be used to process <laughs> DNA to, to use as a sample of DNA? I'm just thinking out loud here because like, yeah. you know, I mean, I guess with the saliva, yeah, that totally makes sense that, you know, the, the quality of the sample may not be as precise as blood because blood is taken straight from your vein. It goes right into the tube, it's sealed, and then it's sent off to the lab where saliva, you know, depending on, like you said, what you ate, did you brush your teeth when you did it? You know, there could be a lot of, you know, there could be a lot of factors in there that give that saliva kind of an alteration, you know, by the time it gets to the lab and by the time they run testing, you know, there's, there's so many variables in there that could, could skew that thing in a, in a different direction. But I guess a piece of hair technically, if it's cut and put into a tube potentially could be as safe as a, as a, is a blood draw, I guess. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good point. And I don't know if there's been any research on using hair samples um, for cancer genetics testing. I would say, uh, you know, still up for debate <laughs> yeah. whether or not putting a hair into your saliva tube uh, would be beneficial. Um, you know, I would say that you would probably need more hair than you'd care to cut off true, 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 <laughs> in yeah. order to, uh, to have a test that could actually be run. Yeah, that's, yeah, good point. That's fa it's just fascinating to me. And and my other thing that I, I came up here with, and I, I think this is, you know, for the, the audience listening at home, and I think, you know, one of the benefits of, uh, I think of uh, the mainstream I wouldn't say media, but just, you know, this whole genetics piece that's been, I think, really popularized is like these 23 and me's. And mm -hmm. so I think when you were saying, you know, just with the saliva, you know, I think that's something that, you know, I think uh, whether it's ancestry.com or 23 and me, I know was doing some genetic and BRCA stuff. Um, I think they got sold or something transpired there, but, you know, I, I guess to my point here is like, I guess the, the validity of those types of tests, as you just mentioned, if you're not really super careful in submitting the proper spit or saliva, that could be skewed really easily. Yeah. And, and to talk a little bit too about why those tests like 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com are different um, than a clinical grade test, um, I think is an important thing to know about too. So, um, you know, learning about your ancestry is fun. I haven't done it myself, but some of my family members have. And not surprisingly, they are exactly uh, what they thought that they would be. Um, but there are limitations to the health information that 23andMe can test for. So they do have FDA approval to test for three specific mutations in BRCA1 and 2. Um, and those are the specific mutations that are more common in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. Um, so they're not looking at, you know, from start to finish. Uh, those BRCA1 and 2 genes to see if there's a mutation anywhere else. Um, so for a person like me, who's, you know, mainly Irish, um, have no Jewish ancestry that I know of, I could do the 23andMe test and my, my BRCA testing would likely come back completely negative uh, unless, you know, there's a secret somewhere in my family. Um, but um, 
so that can give people a false sense of security because that test wasn't designed for someone with my background. So doing 23andMe can be, you know, entertaining and fun and you can learn some things about yourself, but it certainly doesn't substitute for doing an actual clinical grade test um, with your doctor because or a genetic counselor, because that test that you'll get done through the healthcare system will be much more comprehensive um, than than the 23andMe tests. Great point. So on that note, because I've heard this before, you know, having a full panel versus like a half panel test. So for our audience listening at home, let's explain that because I know, I think in the past and, and, you know, people that, and this is another topic that we'll bring up, but maybe people that have had genetic testing like five years ago and only had like a, a, an eight panel test versus I think what's, what's a full panel test? Is it I, I don't want to yeah. throw out the number, but I don't. I, I was going to say twenty four, but I don't even think. I think it's more than that, right? It is. Yeah, you're, that's a good guess. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for a long time, you know, we really only knew about BRCA one and two, and so that was the main testing that was being done. Um, but as we've got better technology, and we've learned more about cancer genetics and what genes can influence cancer risk, um, we're now able to do panel tests, like you said. And what that basically means is that instead of just looking at one gene at a time, the, the laboratories are actually able to analyze many, many genes all at once. Um, and this has brought down not only uh, the cost of the testing, but also how long it takes for you to get results. Um, because for a while we used to do, okay, we're going to test you for this. If you're negative, then we'll, we'll test you for this thing and kind of go in a stepwise fashion. And now we just kind of do it all at once. So, um, so generally, there's, there's lots of different types of panels, um, different sizes. Some of them are specific to certain cancer types. So, for example, there's some that are just genes that are related to breast and ovarian cancer. There are some genes that are, you know, some panels that are Okay, these are all the genes that we know of that are related to pancreatic cancer. Um, but then there are these bigger panels that are more comprehensive that look at um, multiple genes all at once and are related to many different cancer types. So, um, so there's a few labs that have these out there that are commonly used. Um, generally, they range from about 35 to 50 genes or so. Um, which I would say, you know, at least in our practices, is what we've been doing the most of, kind of just casting a, a broad net, make sure we're not missing anything um, to kind of, you know, cover all of our bases. Uh, but then there's even panels that are bigger than that. You know, there's one lab out there that has a panel of 84 genes that are all related to cancer. Um, the, you know, the concern is, is that once you add more genes, um, we can possibly get a result that we weren't expecting, either something that isn't related to the cancer that we have been seeing in the family, it doesn't seem to fit the pattern, or perhaps a variant of uncertain significance, which um, we can get into more, but is basically one of those changes in the DNA where we just don't have enough information about whether it impacts somebody's health or not. We love those variants of unspecified <laughs> significance because we don't know. I, I can. I wish I had a dollar, and I'm not joking about this, but I shouldn't joke about this. You know, for you know, so many people that I've met, and they just said, "Well, yeah, I don't have any. I don't have BRCA, but I have this variant of unspecified existence. Don't know what it is. Yeah. What should I do? I don't know. It's fascinating." Um, mm -hmm. So a couple comments here. So to really, I mean, th 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 this is a great thing that we just went through exercise, you know, kind of going through the panels and talking about, you know, the, the process of what this involves. But I've got to say, Christine, like, if you really want true genetic testing, that's validated, that's correct. It is important to go to a center that has a genetic counselor on their team or someone within that organization, institution that does this. 
Because to think that you can do this over online or over the counter is kind of foolish. Yeah, I mean, as a, speaking as a genetic counselor, <laughs> I would agree with you. Um, you know, I think we have very special training in interpreting these uncertain results and also talking about what that means for you and for your family members. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot about genetics that we still have to learn, which can be frustrating sometimes. Um, and uncertain variants are, are definitely a part of that. But I, I fully agree. I think, you know, it's a team effort. Having somebody on your side who knows how to interpret these genetic results um, and then, you know, what to do based on what the test found is really important. Um, and and it can be really complicated information and certainly not something that, you know, unless you have a master's degree in genetics, you know, we're certainly not expecting you to understand everything about what a report says. And sometimes, too, we get reports back that, you know, we need to bounce off of our colleagues and, you know, get second opinions on um, because it's not as black and white as um, it can seem to be. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think you're you're putting that politely, um, you know, and that's something that I think, you know, I made another note here. Like I, I've heard people like, oh, well, you know, my buddy's a, a GP and he hired, he, you know, he ordered the genetic test and everything looks fine, <laughs> you know, and that's where, I, again, I come back to where you really, this is so specialized that, and there's such an expertise to this. And as we just talked about, you know, from a full panel to a half panel to, you know, 35 to 84, you know, genes that they look at and, and what that may mean, it really behooves you not to go to an expert in this. It's kind of like saying, Hey, I have an issue with my car, but I'm going to go talk to where, you know, my buddy who owns the pizza place who makes pizzas because he knows cars really well, but does he really understand, you know, how the right. car, you know, I've heard that analogy so many times and so many variations that, you know, it's like when you have a heart issue, you go see a cardiologist. You don't ask your neighbor who, you know, um, is an EMT and may understand, you know, cardiology, you know, but is not a specialist to understand the heart itself. Um, yeah. You know, and so this is really, I think, a critical point here, um, you know, that people really need to sit down with experts that know genetics because it is a very complex field. And you've said this a bit, you know, it is it is moving fast. And I know from talking to many people in the field, like what we knew five years ago is totally different than what we knew today because of the field moving so fast. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we've come so far, you know, in the last few years, I, I can't even imagine where we'll be in five more years. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's wise of me to even guess, <laughs> honestly, um, because, you know, our technology is moving so quickly. Um, and there's so much research going on in this space um, where, you know, yeah, we are really moving you know, in a forward direction. So, so we could be, you know, if we talk again in five years, uh, you know, and have an update episode, um, we could be having a completely different conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my next question is knowing what we just went through, um, and we talked about, and this may sound like a little bit redundant, but why should people get tested? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, People come to see genetic counselors for all different sorts of reasons. Um, some people come because of their family history of cancer um, and they want to know, okay, I've had all these relatives that have X, Y, and Z types of cancers. What should I be doing to really manage my own risk about these types of cancers? Is there anything that I can do to lower my risk? Should I be getting extra screening and things like that? And those are all things that genetic counselors can help with. Um, so we see, we see a lot of people like that, that have family histories. Um, and then, you know, we also see patients who have their own history of cancer. Um, and, 
you know, maybe they were diagnosed at a younger age, which for our all intents and purposes is, is less than about 50 years old, um, or perhaps they have a rare type of cancer and, you know, their doctor recommends that they go and have a genetic test done. Um, so we see patients like that too. And then we also see patients who um, have a family history of a mutation that's already been known. And they want to come in and they want to see if they also have it as well, because it can impact their care. So um, so those are the people that generally come to get evaluated by a genetic counselor, um, really people who are looking to see, OK, based on my own personal history, my family history, um, what should I be doing to tailor my health management in order to prevent or detect cancer as early as possible? And am I actually at an increased risk to get cancer based on any of my family history or personal uh, factors? So on that point, my next question was who should get tested, which we've, you've already talked a bit about, but so let's really define that. So if, and I'll ask the question, so if I've never had any cancer in my first line, like my dad, my mom, my brothers, sisters, should I get genetic testing if I'm healthy? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, um, so you know, we we take actually family histories back into your grandparents on both sides, and we ask about all of your aunts and uncles and your cousins when you come in for an appointment. Um, and so sometimes, actually, if more distant relatives like your grandparents or your aunts and uncles can you know, have had cancer, it can give us a clue that maybe something genetic is there. Um, But in that case, you know, we would probably recommend to test somebody who either has had cancer or somebody that's closer related um, to the person who's been diagnosed with cancer. That gives us more information about what that risk is for you. Um, in a per- if you are a person who is healthy and you have no family history of cancer, you know, back to your grandparents and none of your aunts or uncles have, um, you know, we would suspect that you are at population level risk for cancer and that genetic testing um, might not be indicated for you. Um, and so based on that information, you know, making sure that you are continuing to go to your doctor, you know, getting your colonoscopy when you need to, you know, all of that um, good stuff, making sure that you're still on top of your health, but perhaps don't need to be doing anything extra to, um, to screen for cancer. Important. So staying on this topic, because we get a lot of this and I, I'm just thinking like, you know, 10 years of, you know, running Project Purple, you know, we've had people, you know, our connection rates about 97% that people that get involved with our charity, but this happens often. And I know with genes, genes don't necessarily go from generation to generation. They can skip a generation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, actually most of the genes that we, um, test for that are related to cancer actually don't skip a generation. So you can see that risk for cancer in every generation of the family. What that means is not necessarily that every generation of the family will get cancer. Cancer. Okay. Right. So, so just because somebody has a mutation um, and we reassure our patients about this, you know, all the time, it doesn't mean that you have cancer. It doesn't mean 100% that you're going to get cancer. What it means is that in comparison to the rest of the population, you are at an increased risk to get certain cancer types. And those cancer types are dictated by what gene the mutation is in. Um, But, you know, there are things that we can do to watch you more closely based on that genetic mutation in order to either prevent cancer or detect it as early as possible. So that risk of cancer that mutation is seen in every generation of the family. And if we were to go back and test, you know, past generations, we could track it through a family. Um, But not necessarily that cancer is seen in every generation of the family or every person who has a mutation. So going back to the previous question, so let's say, and, and I'm thinking of a family, grandfather dies of pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Now we have a grandchild who's involved. The parent who where that grandfather, the the bloodline where that comes from, mm-hmm. 
if there's so there is cancer on that side of the family there is a potentially an inherent risk the grandchild and that parent where that grandparent line comes from should mm -hmm. both do genetic testing then to identify or maybe the parent should do genetic testing first and if that person is positive for mutation because they can't go back to the grandparent who died of pancreatic cancer Right. Yeah. And you've hit the nail on the head. So what we would say, you know, our first preference, if if at all possible, and oftentimes with, with families who have pancreatic cancer, it's not possible to test the person who has had cancer. Correct. Um, and so that would be kind of, you know, our best uh, case scenario, for lack of a better term, is to test the person who has had cancer. That gives us the most information. Correct. Um, and if a person has a mutation, they have a 50% chance to pass it on to their kids. Um, so in, in your scenario where the, the parent of, of our uh, individual who's enrolled in, or participating in your, in your group, um, our next uh, preference would be to test the person that's closer related mm -hmm. to the person who had cancer. So we would test the parent first. Um, and then if the parent has a mutation, then we would test their kids as Correct. well. So um, so you can't pass on something that you don't have is yeah. how we like to think about it. And it's always um, that next relative, I guess, in line just for the audience listening at home because I think I just look at the scenario like we have so many grandchildren that run for their grandparents that have passed away from yeah. the disease. And I know we talk about like, hey, who should be screened? And and, and just thinking out this out loud, the parent should be screened first before the grandchild who's running exactly. gets screened because there's no way that it can skip. Um, it's got to be passed on. So for what I was saying at home, that's, that's pretty, pretty important piece here. So, I mean, I know with, you know, we're, we're not trying to be doom and gloom. Um, I think there's knowledge. Knowledge is power in all of this, right? Like if you know, right. you can get into early detection programs, precede at Chicago, 34 centers elsewhere around the world. So th there are things that you can do. And as you said, it doesn't guarantee that you get the cancer, but it does give you a higher risk of potentially you know, getting right. the cancer or other cancers, similar cancers. But I think it's exactly. it's important though, I think for our audience to understand, because I just look at it, you know, I don't have the set percentage, but I know we have a lot of grandchildren that run or we have nieces and nephews that run because they are impacted by the disease um, within their family. But it's important to understand that they don't necessarily have to run out and get genetic testing right away if they're concerned their parents or you know that next sibling in line or that next relative in line of that bloodline should get tested and then that will determine whether or not they inherit the gene yeah exactly i would say you know if at all possible um the the person who is closer related to the person who's been affected by pancreatic cancer um testing them first would give us the most information absolutely, absolutely. now of course you know there are some scenarios where People don't want to know if they have a mutation um, that increases their risk for pancreatic cancer or for other cancer types. Um, and in those scenarios, you know, it's not um, inappropriate for, for a niece or a grandchild to come in and have their own evaluation um, if, if a parent isn't interested in doing a genetic test. Yeah. You know, um, it's, you know, we're just careful about it because if it turns out that they are positive, then that also tells us some information about their parent as well. Um, so inadvertently, we can learn something that maybe they didn't want to know in the first place. True, true. Um, so with pancreatic cancer, let's touch on this. So there, there are genes that have been identified, uh, BRCA1 yeah. and 2. There's seven, I believe, if, if my math is correct, or is there more, Christine? Oh, boy. I'm putting you on well, the spot. I know there's ATM, there's, there's Lynch syndrome, there's palpy one and two, right? Yeah. So we have, yeah, BRCA one and two, and then we have uh, genes related to Lynch syndrome, which um, 
if if your audience isn't as familiar with that, that's a syndrome that's mainly uh, classified by colon cancer and endometrial cancer, but can also have a risk for pancreatic cancer and yep. some other types as well. Um, and then there's a few other genes, ATM that you mentioned, PALB2. Um, there's a gene that's called CDKN2A. Um, that is a gene that uh, increases the risk for pancreatic cancer and a specific type of skin cancer called melanoma. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the gene that's called STK11, which increases the risk or, or which causes a syndrome, excuse me, called Peutz-Jäger syndrome. Um, and this is a, is a more rare syndrome that can increase the risk for pancreatic cancer among some other things as well. Um, I think that those are the big ones for now. Correct. And so you said for now, <laughs> which I, we're, we're laughing, right? We shouldn't laugh, but, but, but the whole point in laughing is there's so much that's unknown. And this is where I want to go because you yeah. mentioned is, you know, and this is the second type of, you know, we, we get three types, people who come to us and say, Hey, I'm, I don't have any genetic mutation. I'm good. Great. Come back in five years. If we find something new, then, you know, we probably should have you retested. People who do have one of these identified gene mutations should be in surveillance that we've identified. But then there's this third segment, which is what, you know, you mentioned it before, this variant of unspecified existence, right? So what should those people do? And and what is that? That's just something that we haven't, genetics just hasn't identified, right? Yeah. So what it is, is like, if I think about genetic, a gene, you can think about it kind of like a a chapter book. So, um, you know, when, when we're doing genetic testing, we're actually reading, uh, the gene from the start of the book to the end. And what it's looking for is spelling mistakes along the way, um, that either change the meaning of the book or, you know, perhaps make the book stop in the last 70 pages or blank. Um, you know, so that's actually what we're looking for when we do a genetic test. And what those variants of uncertain significance are is a spelling change in the gene. Um, but we don't have enough evidence to say, does this change the meaning of the book? Will a person who is able, who's reading this still get the full meaning of the book with this particular spelling change in it. Um, And so one example that I like to use um, is that there are multiple ways to spell different words. So let's use the word gray, for example. So here in in the States, we spell it G-R-A-Y, but in the UK, they spell it with an E, Hmm. right? G-R-E-Y. And so that is a a variant, right? A change um, in the way that that word is spelled. Um, and the first time you see it, you might say, huh, I wonder, like, does this mean the same thing as the gray that I know? Yeah. Uh, or is this a different thing? And so um, once we get more knowledge about those specific variants, um, then we're able to decide one way or the other if that change increases the risk of cancer or not. And so over time, we've learned that the way that we spell gray in the States is means the same thing as our uh, friends across the pond. Um, And so it's one of those things that does not impact the meaning. Um, So when we have a variant of uncertain significance on those tests, um, what, what we do or what the labs do is actually keep track of that. And as more and more people have genetic testing, they learn more about what that change means. Um, and so eventually, you know, it could take months or years, this change will be reclassified to either benign, uh, you know, and, and everyone has changes in their DNA. So, you know, most of the time, this is what happens or something that is pathogenic that does increase the risk of cancer. So keeping in touch with your genetic counselor and, and, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, having a genetic counselor is important uh, because they will actually get those updates from the laboratories when those variants of uncertain significance are changed. And then they can let you know about those changes. Um, So, you know, we would say if there's a variant of uncertain significance on your testing, making sure to check in with your with your team that ordered your genetic test, you know, once every three to five years or so, just to see if there's any updates is probably for the best. So that was a question I was going to ask. So, you know, if someone goes through testing 
and they don't see anything. They're clean. They don't need to do anything any further, correct, unless they get sick and there's anything that comes out of that illness. Well, so at this point, you know, um, say, say somebody comes in and tests for their family history of cancer um, and they have a negative genetic test. And it's one of those comprehensive tests that looks for genes related to all sorts of cancer types. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, based on that, that negative test, um, they're not at one of these significantly elevated risks for cancer that we know of that's caused by a gene mutation. However, even in the case of a negative test, there also might be some screening that we would recommend um, based on family history. And so this is kind of a key thing um, that comes up with pancreatic cancer specifically. Sometimes in families where more than one person on the same side of the family has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, there's no mutation that can be found. Hmm. Um, And in those cases, we still think that even though the person is negative on their genetic test, that they're still at an increased risk for pancreatic cancer. And there's still, so there's surveillance and things that we can do to watch their pancreas more closely because we still think there's that increased risk. That's so fascinating and, and scary at the same time, right? Because, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about genetics and what we know, and then this this whole unknown of, you know, this disease that, um, you know, it's exciting in a way, but also scary in a way, I guess, not to, you know, put fear in anyone. But I think that's something that, you know, you just mentioned, though, family history is really critical in all of this. So if there is a family yeah. history of the disease and you do come out and there is a negative on your genetic testing, you should still talk to the team where you are. And this is, I guess, a, you know, a bit of a of a plug for Precede, you know, with this early <laughs> detection consortium, you know, if you're in Chicago, you know, you're going to talk to Dr. Cuffer, you're going to talk to yourself and you'll have those conversations. I don't think you would get that at another center outside of this consortium because that's not what the goal, ultimate goal is, right? Is, you know, if you, if you go to your local community hospital and, and meet with a genetic counselor and, you know, everything comes back negative, but you have a family history of pancreatic cancer which is, which could happen, you know, you should still, you know, be in, in some sort of, you know, program potentially, you know, to watch out for your risk in the future. Um, and I know that's one of the cohorts that we are studying and precede is, you know, this kind of, I wouldn't say oddball, but it's just kind of these, these cases where you don't have any positive genes, but you have this very strong family history of this disease. And those people still need to be conscious about their family history because that may play a role in their history, you know, in yeah, the future. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, yeah, there are centers and, and they're mostly, you know, major academic centers that have um, the ability to do pancreatic cancer surveillance. And so, um if, for example, somebody has this family history of pancreatic cancer and they do genetic testing and they're negative, they might be referred to one of these uh, larger academic centers where studies like Proceed are going on um, so that they can get the surveillance that they need that is unfortunately just not able to happen everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Powerful stuff. So I've got something I want to bring back. I've got two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. You said something before that I took a note here that really kind of perked my interest. If I gave you a blank check or if you were in charge of this nationwide, let's play make believe here for a second, Christine, how do we amplify these GI mutations? I'm very curious to see what your answers might be. You know, given what we know today, how do we do a better job in amplifying, you know, the GI mutations that we're aware of? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, uh, I am not a a marketing (laughs) expert by any means, Um, but I think, you know, coming from a bit of a public health background at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I would say it's important to rely on our public health partners and to work with the communities to really get the word out there about these other types of inherited risks. Um, And, you know, 
I use breast cancer awareness month as an example. I think, um, you know, nationwide, the efforts that go into breast cancer awareness month are so astounding and so, um, encouraging to see how many people are willing to share their stories and, um, you know, all of the efforts that, that is put into screening, you know, mammograms and things like that for, for breast cancer awareness. Um, and I don't see why we can't do anything like that for pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that people, you know, know as much about, I think right off the bat as being something that can be passed down through a family. And so I think community education, getting, um, you know, getting our primary care doctors more involved with knowing who to refer to genetics. Um, that's a big, uh, you know, a big undertaking, but I think that's something that would help too. Yeah. The, the primary care guys, if you're listening, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't like to beat them up because um, they're, they're good people, but you know, they're, they're always mm-hmm. the front line of everything, right? Like, you know, people yeah. always call their GP before they call their genetic counselor or their, you know, or a, a, a GI specialist. Right. So I, I think that is right. a critical piece to, to really amplifying this, yeah. and, you know, breast cancer is a great example. And, you know, as I mentioned before, my mom, you know, went through it twice and she's alive because of the efforts that they've made. So I, I, we've mentioned it before on this podcast, you know, and various other topics, you know, if we could do the things that they've done, I think we'd move the needle a lot quicker, but we're pushing, we're pushing, we're yeah. pushing, we're pushing. So my well, yeah, and there's, there are efforts like Project Purple too that are really making a difference in this space and giving families a place to connect with other families that have gone through similar things. And so that's, you know, this is where it all begins. Um, so I think we're, you know, you have, have certainly pushed the needle, as you say, uh, you know, yourself, which is great. We're pushing, <laughs> especially nowadays. We're pushing really hard. Uh, last yeah. question here. Um, and on that note, you know, if someone listening to this, I want you to talk a little bit about the program there at Chicago. I know you're fairly new, but you know, Dr. Cuffer has been at this for not, not, I don't want to sound like this, like she's been doing it for 20 years, but she's been doing it for a while. She's been doing it for a long time. I think more than people are aware of it. Um, and you know, hopefully this podcast and many of the other things are helping to amplify the great work that she's doing there. But so talk a little bit about the program at Chicago. Like, what does it involve? Like if someone's listening to this podcast, we've got a lot of Chicago land. Uh, that's a term that people like to use. That's like the greater Chicago area. I'm sure you've heard that a couple of times, you know, we've got so many supporters in the, in the Chicago land area. What would yeah. someone have to do, you know, to get involved? And what does that look like with the program there at the University of Chicago Medical Center? Yeah, that's great. So, um, so here at, at UChicago, um, basically first, you know, people are put onto our schedule to get an, a genetic evaluation. Um, and so what that means is that you're not signing up to get genetic testing. Um, what, what you're doing is more signing up to have a conversation with me and with Dr. Cupper about your family history um, and, you know, whether genetic testing is something that um, could be beneficial for you, could give us some information about genetic risk in your family. Um, and then we'd also, you know, talk with you about, based on your family history, what would we recommend for you um, in order to manage your risk? Um, so sometimes that recommendation includes genetic testing. Um, sometimes it includes um, doing surveillance of the pancreas um, with either a special type of MRI called an MRCP or an endoscopic ultrasound. Um, and then, you know, we also have some research studies that have been going on and, and we've talked, just, you know, mentioned briefly, proceed. Um, we are so excited to be a part of it. We actually enrolled our first uh, participant yesterday. Um, so we're kind of, you know, riding the I got some, I got a cowbell. That's so awesome. We're so excited. Um, it went well. So, you know, um, so people are eligible to participate in this research study and, um, I, and it's a really global effort to better understand how we should be taking care of families who have an increased risk for pancreatic cancer, given either a mutation or a family history. Um, 
And so what that study is doing is uh, is just accessing your medical information when you undergo surveillance um, of the pancreas so that we can kind of keep track of any findings, things like that. So we learn better about the outcomes um, to figure out who we should be doing surveillance for. And then also getting some extra blood samples from you so that we um, can hopefully come up with an early detection test uh, for for pancreatic cancer, so you kind of get a whole um, a whole team approach. It's kind of a little like a parade. Like first you'll talk to me, and then you'll talk to Dr. Kupfer, and then you'll talk to our research coordinator if you're okay with that. Um, but I think that that really highlights the fact that it's a team approach, and we don't want anyone to feel like they're in this pancreatic cancer risk world alone. You're, because you're not, you know, you have great organizations like Project Purple, and then you have uh, trained, you know, genetic professionals and gastroenterologists who specialize in this area. And of course, all of the research that's going on, and we all have the same goal, um, which is to, you know, come up with better ways to treat this disease. So that's kind it. of what our what our appointments look like. I love it. You guys do all the heavy work though. Uh, our job is easy. You know, we're, we're helping to, you know, fund all this great work that you guys are doing. So appreciate all the hard work because it is a lot of work, uh, but we can't do it alone. So, um, you know, together we can move mountains and that's what we're trying to do. My last question for you, Christine, and probably yeah. one of the most important things is where can someone reach out? What's the best way? Email, phone, yes. internet, website. Yes. If someone is interested in, in reaching out to you, what's that? Where should they do that? Mm -hmm. So the best way to probably, you know, it depends on what your goal is. If you want a, a genetic evaluation with me and Dr. Kupfer and you're in the area, the best thing to do is to visit the University of Chicago's Medical Center's website. Um, give us a, a call with that number that's listed there. Um, and ask, you know, for an appointment with Dr. Kupfer and myself for a genetic evaluation for your family history of pancreatic cancer. Um, that would be, you know, probably the best way to do that. If you are interested in um, learning more about the PROCEED study, um, I will, you know, check with our research coordinator that it's okay to give out her email, but I'm sure that it will be. Um, she's very excited to get things going. Her name is Zoe. Um, Eilers, yep. she's fantastic. Um, so, so she has, you know, all of the information about getting involved in what the research looks like. That's a great way um, to to join Precede here in the Chicago area. Um, and then also, you know, I know that you also have listeners in other places around the country as well. And so, um, if you are not in the Chicago area and you feel like you would like a genetic evaluation, there is a website that is called. Um, NSGC, it's the National Society of Genetic Counselors, um, .org, and they have an option on there where you can actually type in your zip code um, and find a genetic counselor in your area, somebody that specializes in cancer genetics um, that you know, they can see you and do an evaluation for you based on your personal or family history. So those would be, I think, the best places to, to find some great resources. Awesome. And you also can get to uh, the Chicago team's website via the precedeconsortium.org, which is the website for Precede. Just to plug that really quick and just scroll down to the bottom, look at partners and look for the University of Chicago Medical Center logo and then click on that. And that hyperlink will bring you to Dr. Cuffler's page. So thank you so much, Christine, for being on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for all you do. It's been a pleasure to uh, allow myself to interview you to talk about all the great things you're doing in genetics and for our audience to hear. So thank you. Enjoy Chicago. I know it's going to turn quick in terms of weather, <laughs> uh, but enjoy every single minute of it. And for our audience listening home, thank you for listening once again to the Project Purple podcast. Please be safe. If you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, share our podcasts, and until next time, be safe. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.